Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices with ULI, welcoming you to the latest installment of our podcast series. Today's conversation is with Phil Freelon, with whom I'd had the great pleasure to speak with for the podcast a few weeks ago. He was the founder of the Freelon Group, which became one of the largest African-American-owned architecture firms in the country, and which merged with Perkins & Will in 2014. Phil has spent most of his career focused on public architecture. Projects have included the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, a mansion patient park in Houston, multiple library projects, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, the recently completed Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, and he is midstream on the Motown Museum. As we spoke about his work, what resonated for me was the word legacy, thinking about the meaning of the work he has created, his teaching and support for young black architects, and his family as well. I also had the opportunity this past weekend to visit his new museum at the Smithsonian and have the chance to observe American history through the lens of the African-American experience. I will tell you that this was one of the most moving of the interviews I've had for Leading Voices. I hope that you gain some understanding of Phil's legacy through hearing his story. Have a listen. If you've been a listener to the podcast series, you know that in my day job, I'm the founder of Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused search firm where I get to interview leaders in the real estate business as clients and candidates. On the podcast, I get to do the same, but for the purpose of sharing unique stories of leadership and accomplishments in the different nooks and crannies of the real estate world with both ULI members and other listeners. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope that you will subscribe to the series, which you can do on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I invite you to review the series on the iTunes store, and we welcome your comments, feedback, and discussion on ULI's Facebook or Twitter, or via email at leadingvoices at uli.org, or to me directly at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Hi, Phil. It's Matt Sleppin. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's a beautiful day in San Francisco, and, and you're in Durham today? I'm in Durham, North Carolina, and it's a nice day here, too, after or four straight days of rain. So we're happy to see the sunshine here. A few headlines to orient our listeners. You grew up in Philly in a family with some deep history in the civil rights movement. You're an MIT trained architect and you've taught at North Carolina State University, Harvard, MIT, and many others. You're a Harvard Loeb fellow, after which you started your own architecture firm in 1990, which expanded to become the largest African-American owned architecture firm in the country. You've won many design awards and have really specialized in the public realm, which we'll talk about. And your signature design has been the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture that's on the National Mall. You were an Obama appointee to the National Commission of Fine Arts. And finally, you joined forces with Perkins Will a couple years ago. So you're now part of one of the leading global design firms. There's a lot to talk about. (laughs) Yes. 
I, I love to talk to people about kind of how they got started, where they came from, and maybe how that influenced the direction and path that they took. You grew up sure. in Philly, which is my hometown. Talk about growing up. Great. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a family surrounded by the arts, both performing arts, visual arts. My parents were were in tune with all of that. And my grandfather, Alan Freelon Sr., was actually a noted painter during the Harlem Renaissance period. And you look in books and libraries and, and study up on artists from that time period, you'll see Alan Freelon Sr. Uh, there. Mm-hmm. And so I remember visiting his studio and being encouraged after showing some talent in sketching and an interest in drawing and so forth that my parents and particularly my grandfather encouraged that. And, and I always thought I would be an artist of some sort, maybe an industrial designer or a product designer, something like that. But when I got to high school, and if you're from Philadelphia, you may be familiar with Central High School, which is the, of course. a public school, but one of the best in the country. It's selective and it draws from all over the city. And I was fortunate to to be able to attend that school. My brother went there as well. My older brother, my father went there. And so Lou, Lou Kahn went there. <laughs> and, uh, really? I think my dad went yeah. there, actually. Your Small dad world. Gone there. So it, it was almost equivalent to a prep school education, but it, but it was in, in the public schools. And they they offered, you know, art classes and some design classes, drafting. And that's when I started to make the connection between the arts, the visual arts, and other things that interested me uh, at the time, like mathematics and science, particularly physics and geometry. And and those things together seem to be a, a good blend of of the arts and the sciences and the things that I not only enjoyed, but I, I excelled at in school. And And so when I began to look into that at Central High School and taking the drafting courses and just sort of plowing through that in record speed, it, it, it occurred to me that I could I could do well in this field, not really knowing any architects or my parents didn't know any architects, but we knew in a way like most people in general have a sense of what architects do, right? They design houses, mm-hmm. they draw blueprints, quote unquote, you know, they do these things. Of course. And, and so while I, I really didn't know much about it, I had a general sense. And, you know, when I got to architecture school, it turned out to be everything I had hope for and, and more. I just continued to really be enthused and excited about about a career in this field. And, and it's interesting because most architects don't have the opportunity. Very, very, very few architects have the opportunity to work on the kind of kinds of projects that you've worked on where you're making an artistic statement in a huge way. Well, I feel very fortunate in that regard. And and it was an evolution to get there. It's not like I woke up one day and the Smithsonian called and I'm I'm designing a museum. <laughs> so I worked for 13 years for other firms and, and started my own firm in 1990 after the Loeb Fellowship at Harvard. And I was one person. You know, it was one, then two, then three, five, 10, 20, up to about 65. And so it, it was a progression. And it, it, the the type of work always followed my personal interests and also the experience I had gained working in other firms, doing schools and doing projects on colleges and universities, things that were things that were associated with uh, education and learning and, and sharing knowledge and being the buildings contributing to the vitality uh, and growth of a community. 
these were the types of projects I was drawn to. And over time, after being asked to do a library here and a cultural center there and an addition and things, there, there was a, a body of work that had kind of threw me in, in the direction of, of where, where we headed some years later. And and then what? tell us about the Loeb Fellowship and then did that help you make the leap to know that you had to or wanted to or had the capability of creating your own firm? Well, it, it did. And, and as I mentioned, I'd worked for other firms and I, I always advise interns and recent graduates to you know, get a variety of experiences, particularly in, a, in an urban setting, offices of different scales, firms that have different modes of practice, project types. And, and that's what I did. You know, I worked for firms ranging from two or three people up to 500. I was in Houston, Texas, working at 3D International, a large firm there. I was the youngest associate in the firm at the time in my 20s. And also working uh, for a small firm in, in Durham that had about five people and everything in between. And so when I returned from Houston, I, w- I was recruited to come back and join a firm that was started by two people I had known from school, my school days. I'd worked summers for, for a firm, and these guys had opened their own practice and kept track of me. So when I returned to North Carolina in 1980, excuse me, 82, that practice was about 35 people. And so seven years later, when I took the Loeb Fellowship, that practice was 150 people. So I had the benefit and the experience of of being part of that growth and being a partner there and a shareholder and vice president of architecture, which included 50 people. And that was just an incredible kind of development for a young person. And at the same time, I felt, you know, disconnected from the design side, being more in, in management very early in my career and, you know, hiring people and running an architecture practice in a, in a larger AE firm. And that's when I decided to, to take a break and, and see if I could, you know, be selected as a Loeb Fellow, a very competitive program. And, and I was. I took a leave of absence to do the Loeb Fellowship in 1989, school year 89-90. Right, which and is a Harvard that, program. That away, that's a Harvard program for mid-career professionals, design professionals. So I was uh, I came up through the design ranks. I mean, in, in this profession, you kind of find your own talent and niche. And those of us who are lucky enough to to have some design skill are kind of channeled that way. And you know, others may go into project management or construction right. administration or spec writing or or you know, detailing, um, project architect, those, there are all sorts of wonderful avenues for careers in architecture. And so having been a designer, you know, I was feeling anxious about getting back to doing that, uh, yet I had migrated to this management position. Mm-hmm. So the year I took off at Harvard was a chance to kind of take a deep breath. It was almost like a sabbatical from the profession and and able to, you know, be there at the graduate school of design and the larger Harvard community and putting together an independent program of study and just kind of gathering myself and understanding what I might want to do with the rest of my career. And so somewhere mid midway through the fellowship, I decided that when I finished my commitment at Harvard in May of, of 1990, that I would, you know, go off on my own. And, and it took some time, you know, starting in January of that year, 
uh-huh. to uh, dis- disengage from the firm. There, there was stock involved. There was a non-compete clause and, and things of that nature that had to be worked through in order to do what I wanted to do. And it took it took time and some, you know, a little bit of a struggle to, to make that happen. And, and was your goal when you then formed your own firm, was that to get closer to design? Was it to focus on the kind of design that you love? Was it to grow a firm and, and be a leader of a firm to pursue your own vision? Kind of talk well, a little bit about things. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. all of those things. So I, I had a desire to build a firm in a certain way to, to align with my personal goals and values. And so when I mentioned this other firm I was with, well, I was by far the youngest partner and I had ideas and the two founders were always like, well, we're going to do it our way. And of course, they earned the right to to run the firm the way they wanted to. And, you know, they were in their mid 40s. They were going to be around for a while longer. And so I just had, had been, as I say, working for a while in different settings. And I had a notion about what I wanted to do. It was a little different from let's say a young person hanging their shingle out just after licensure, you know, you know, I, I really had the benefit of seeing uh, different modes of practice, different size firms, different ways of going about things, uh, things I wanted to emulate, things I wanted to maybe not emulate or copy. So, yes, it was all those things, including, you know, getting, being more closely associated with the design work and also just moving in a direction where I felt like I could have a, a greater impact on on the communities where I built work. And, and if you look at the 24 years that you had your own firm, were those goals accomplished? And, and if you articulated day one and then you look back after, at 24 years and said, we've done this, we've approached it this way, did that meet, exceed your vision? And and. Well, you know, uh, when you set when you set goals, and, and I had a business plan and all that, you know, the, the the notion is you you kind of refer back to it along the way and make adjustments. It's not like mm-hmm. it goes in the file cabinet and then 25 years later you pull it out and say, did I make it or didn't I? So there were always sort of adjustments and and refinements of that through you know a strategic planning process, sometimes formal, sometimes informal where, you know, you reassess what you want to do and how you want to get there and other people get involved and you have partners and you know their ideas are, are great. You surround yourself with people that that are that complement your skill set and and together you, you you begin to, you know, steer the ship slightly maybe in a slightly different course and as you grow. And and that's what happened. And I, I have had an occasion to look back at my business plan from nineteen ninety and it was ambitious. It was funny. You know, I thought I'd have in 10 years, I'd, I'd have a, an office in Paris and I'd be working internationally and all this. And <laughs> of course, in 1990, uh, the early part of that year, the economy was strong, but then the Gulf War hit in August of that year. And so there was a recession in, in right the away. latter part of 1990 that lasted, you know, a half decade. So, you know, you kind of roll roll with it and make the adjustments and well, remember that with the economy the way it was, that was about the only kind of work that was available. When when you hit a downturn in the national economy, the first thing that drives up is public sector work. The banks stop. Excuse me, private sector work. The banks stop right. loaning. Developers go away. On the other hand, the funding cycles for state government, 
municipal governments, even the federal government, they have a lag to them. There are years that that the private sector, the public sector, will continue on into a recession because those decisions were made years earlier and and the funds become available and kind of carry you through. So by by choice, yes, but also by circumstance, we, we did a lot of public sector work. And, and it also was the sort of projects that were interesting to us for reasons that I mentioned. Uh, improving communities, uh, you know, bringing better educational facilities online for public public schools and, and colleges and universities and that sort of thing. I want to talk about kind of big, big famous projects. But one thing that caught my eye is you've done a lot of library projects. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious, maybe as you started that and then as that work has matured, I'm so curious between the intersection between design and conceptualization and over that period of time, what libraries were then, but what libraries are now. And I half understand what a library is. And maybe Mm -hmm. in the largest part of it, maybe that it's a public space. Uh, talk about that. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because when the internet became more and more prominent, you know, in the late '80s and early '90s, people were saying, "Well, who who's going to need libraries when you can just go online and and find what you want right. to know?" And you know, libraries are going to disappear. And and what happened was the exact opposite. You know, these neighborhood libraries became more important and became more similar to like a community center and, and other services began to, to be important in, in those uh, institutions. And, and uh, there was this, they became a source of pride for their local communities. And, and let's face it, not everyone, even today, not everyone has a computer. And you can go to the library and, 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 and get online and find a job and, and search for, you know, connections to, to different people. And when you don't have that facility or hardware at home. It has been really curious and fascinating to me to see how this notion of the neighborhood library, even the uh, city, you know, central library, uh, these things have become, you know, hubs of activity and centers for community. And so we, right. we, we've designed quite a few of those here locally and, and around the country. Uh-huh. And our, our library practice has expanded in recent years to include university uh, libraries. And what we're seeing on these campuses is that the library is merging with the student center and and becoming kind of the the heartbeat of the campus. Uh, Let's face it, you know, you go to college primarily to get an education. So it's all about learning. But the social experience and interaction with, with other students and faculty and staff is also a really important aspect of of that part of our lives when we're in our late teens and early 20s. So it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon that, that we see. Yeah, it's an important civic institution that surprised me because I'd been outside of libraries for years and years and then in some small communities wound up going into libraries and then saw a hub of activity and arts and dance classes and yoga classes and music yeah. and sharing LPs. I guess there's no such thing as an LP, but sharing CDs and and and, and, and videos, videos and, yeah. and renting movies and you know uh, I think the 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 public libraries have, have learned from places like Borders and you know the the uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of um you know, the big bookstores uh, yeah yeah Barnes and Noble 
Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble, and and Borders and uh, other places that that have said, okay, people want to come, they want to sit down and open up a book. You don't always want to go online and and be, you know, just in your own little shell, but it's a it's a social space, and people want to have a cup of coffee while they're doing it, and, and a Danish, mm-hmm. and you know, they want to grab a newspaper from a different city and read about that, and that whole social interaction piece of it becomes really important. So let's talk about another one before the, the sexy ones. You were the designer of the Durham County Human Services Complex. My favorite part is human, it's a, the, the words between human services and complex, they fit together in some ways. And so I'm curious, yeah. how do you take those same concepts and humanize what may quickly feel, you know, as I use the words, my voice dropped instead of went up? Mm-hmm. How, how do you make those places of, of engagement that's on a very positive note? Well, the key word is human, and and to mm-hmm. understand that the people coming there are the most needy in, in in their community. They can't afford to go to a doctor. They 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 don't have health care insurance and or or dental coverage. Uh, they may need family counseling, and so all all these social services in our county, Durham, had been decentralized in different buildings, and some of them in disrepair and and. You know, and so if you if you were a family that had needed these services, you had to go from one place to another, get on the bus and ride again. And and, and there are, there are overlaps because we we want this we wanted this facility to be welcoming, and that and mm-hmm. for the people that work there to feel proud to, to go into it. And and so architecture can really affect the mood and also lift the community. And I'll go back to the libraries and some of the places like Anacostia. In Washington D.C., uh, where our library site was in the middle of a very depressed community, there was drug activity and other crime going on. And well, after this library was built, not a speck of graffiti, not not you know the crime, no crime around there. They went somewhere else. You know, people take pride in these civic institutions and take ownership. And mm-hmm. the same with the Durham County Human Services Complex. We wanted somewhere that was that was welcoming, that was dignified. That gave people a sense of belonging to a community. We have a quote on, on the outside of the building, you know, hearkening back to the older days of architecture where tablatures and votive walls would, would often have, you know, words or, or, or quotes. And, and and we did that, put a phrase about people being respected and the health of every individual was important to their community. And I'm paraphrasing. And, and we wanted folks to feel, you know, welcomed and comfortable. And there's a funny story associated with this, and I'll, I'll tell you. Please. I'm proud, and it's all, it also makes me chuckle. But, um, you know, as the building was opening, um, and maybe it was the second day it was open, but I was still there. I was looking at some details and punch list items, and, and a woman came came in, and, and she I overheard her saying to the security guard, she says, um, well, I found I found the museum, but where's the social services complex? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Almost as if this couldn't be it. It's too beautiful, and uh, it looks like a museum. And you know, while that wasn't exactly intentional, it, it it was consistent with the idea that you know this should be a beautiful place, and it's the it's the state of North Carolina's largest lead certified building, gold certified. It's a uh, it's a low-scale building, so only four stories, and but it takes up an entire block. And so we've created this courtyard in the center to, to help with daylighting, 
I'm very proud proud of that project. And when, when you put it in the context of not being as sexy as the others, I, I don't quite agree. I'm very proud of that. Also, the public bus station that we designed here in Durham. For the same reason, I wanted it to be, you know, filled with light and beautiful. Uh, and it is. And people take care of it. And it doesn't look like an inner city bus station. And and people treat it with respect and are, are happy to come into that light-filled space and uh, where most of these similar facilities in cities are dingy and places you wouldn't want to be seen or go to. It's a fascinating question. It's a fascinating question in these times of cutbacks and not believing in government, or I don't know the right word for that. But if the civic institution feels right, looks right, and speaks to the best of us, it brings out the best of us. And and you're the one who gets yeah, to translate true. that. I have believe you, that's true. Have you ever been in the HUD building? No. In, in, in DC? Yeah, DC. I don't I'm not an architect, so I don't know the word. I, I think it's brutalist architecture, but at, yes, you it's know brutalist. I know the building you're talking about. Oh it's oppressive. It's, yeah. Yeah. It, it's an oppressive building and maybe it if they had started the agency in a wonderful light filled building that uplifted your hearts, maybe the agency would have had a better time over time with within the world of government. Well, and you know, I, I believe that architecture can have a positive impact on people and the surroundings. Now, we don't want to place too much importance on on buildings and materials and spaces. Um, you know, they have an impact, but the, uh, I think it's a mistake to say that uh, architecture can control or or right. really, you know, play a bigger part than than it should. Nonetheless, people can be uplifted or depressed or in any range of emotions based on how they feel in a space. Well, that, that's what urban environments could do generally. And you know urban environments that you walk through that just lift your heart and has an excitement to it. And then you know the same ones that kind of get you down. And if you're going to spend yeah. money to create these places, it matters. So maybe that brings us to the Smithsonian project and A, how you, you won that, B, what was their intention and C, what was your intention? What were you trying to accomplish and, and talk about it? Well, that, that project was a long time coming in every sense of the word for, for, for the nation, mm-hmm. the Smithsonian, our pursuit of it took, took quite a while. And I first learned about the possibility of a Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, you know, around 2004, uh, 2003 or four, when President George W. Bush created a commission to study the possibility of, of this sort of museum there in the nation's capital. And I began to attend, you know, I would go up once a quarter and, and participate and attend the, the commission meetings and getting to know some of the people on the commission and, you know, with, with, a, with a dream of maybe one day having a possibly, mm. possibly being involved in something like this. And I would see colleagues up there, uh, Marshall Purnell, who's a prominent Washington, D.C. architect, his firm, Devereux and Purnell. Has, has has done great work there. I, w- I would see Marshall. I would see Max Bond from New York. This firm, Davis Brody Bond, is very prominent there. And and I knew these guys, and you know 
the the architecture community is small to begin with, and those of us who are African Americans, it's even a smaller slice, and we can talk more about that later. But Max and I knew that somewhere along the way we we were going to compete for this, and we got to talking and, and and had the notion that maybe we should team up and and join forces to go after this project, and uh, that's what we did. We formed an, an an informal alliance called Freelon Bond. And you know we were uh, you know thinking about the competition and how how others would would be entering the fray and you know from international firms to domestic firms and all the star architects and everyone would certainly be pursuing this and and we knew about David Ajay and and you know, the young Tanzanian-born British architect and mm-hmm. we were wondering what what is he going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and around that time, you know, David David called us and wanted to meet. You know, we said, "Wow, this is interesting. You know, our team is already set, but you know, let's talk to them and see what comes of it." So I flew to New York, and Max and I met with David. I wanted to just kind of feel him out, see what kind of guy we we neither of us had met him personally. We we knew him by reputation, and we talked about our various uh, approaches to design and philosophy and you know what was important to us and our process and it turned out there was a lot of alignment with with our thinking about architecture and design and and uh personality wise we found david to be a, a nice guy you know you never know with architects right but um he, <laughs> he he was down to earth you know he he was collaborative and that was a, a really good sign and we said well let's Let's expand the team and became Freelon Ajay Bond. And then later the Smith Group was added because they were in D.C. and they had a longstanding relationship with the Smithsonian. So our team, you know, kind of evolved organically over time. And we didn't sit down one day and say, let's get four architects together, but it kind of unfolded that way. And it, and it turned out to be a, a really good collaborative team to, to work with. And, and I guess the results are, are apparent. You know, we've had a lot of success and mm-hmm. the building is magnificent. I mean, I, that may sound self-serving, but we're very proud of, of what was accomplished with that team. You should be. I, I haven't been inside, I've but I've walked by and my jaw dropped. A, I didn't know there was going to be a building at that unbelievable location next to the Washington Monument. But then when I saw the materials and the shape, it just blew me away. And then the closer I got, the more I wanted to feel and see it. And it was very welcoming. But I didn't get to go in. So I don't, I don't know it was open when I was there. Talk about, talk about that. So talk about the feeling sure. of it. Talk about your goal. What do you want to accomplish? And, and how that was in concert with the vision that the Smithsonian had for the museum from the beginning. Right. You know, my approach to cultural institutions like museums that have maybe a, a theme to them or have a, a root in, in culture or history, my, my approach has always been to try and try and design a, a building that that expresses the, the, the mission and vision of the institution in some way and, and contributes to the storytelling. So that the the museum isn't simply an enclosure around exhibits or uh, galleries. That the architecture itself is participating in in that that storytelling and 
and there is a purpose beyond the shape and the materials. And and that's even from the smallest uh, project to the biggest. You know that that's been a consistent notion mm-hmm. of ours. And I, I'm not sure that's that's totally unique in architecture, but it's something certainly I've been advocating my whole career. And and what does that mean? Well, it means that we wanted to, particularly in a competition setting, we we wanted the building to to be expressive of 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 its purpose and its origins. And as we began thinking about this, and one one of the challenges of competition, as opposed to you know direct selection and working with the client as you develop ideas, is that you have to kind of dream up something and and develop an idea in a vacuum. You don't get to interact, you know, in real time right. with, with the client and with the user groups and and have the kind of stakeholder meetings that we typically have to find out what the community thinks and and to include you know, a broader group of interested parties in the design. So that means we, you know, we had to kind of develop something, you know, on our own that we would hope would resonate with, with the Smithsonian and the decision makers, uh, the, the selection panel that was put together, which, which included journalists and uh, educators, obviously uh, museum professionals, architects, and, and, and others. And 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 so we knew that this was a, obviously an African American museum. And there's an African component to that, that term African American. Mm-hmm. Certainly the, the American aspect of it. So we we wanted something that had harkened back a bit to to the motherland, Africa, but also something that that spoke to you know where we are, our time and place now, and historically, and and looking into the future. As an African-American man, it must be a dream to be able to accomplish a building like that, to be that deeply involved in this monument. It's been a, a, a real honor and a privilege to, to work on this. And, you know, it's, uh, I feel like I was born to, to be involved, to, to have this role. Uh, it came along at a point in my career when I was ready, I was prepared, I was capable and had the expertise and, and experience to do it. And you could say I was very lucky. But I, I I agree with the person that said luck is the intersection of uh preparedness and uh opportunity. So I rec- I recognized the opportunity and I was prepared to to try and, and uh execute. Absolutely true. So we've talked a lot about uh, kind of your firm. We've talked a lot about being an African American architect. I think two percent of the architects in the country are black. Talk about what that means and and your leadership and scholarship and support of of growing that. Yes, and I mentioned earlier that the architect's profession itself is is kind of small, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's not unusual for someone like me to say, you know, I became an architect, but I didn't know one. Growing up, I, my parents didn't know any architects, and and when you think about the profession as a whole, there are only about 125,000 licensed architects in the U.S. Now you compare that with attorneys; there are over a million attorneys in the U.S. Positions, <laughs> 800,000. Okay, so the profession itself is small. It's small, and then within that very tiny profession, you've got a small sliver of 2% are African-American. 
So chances are, if you're a young kid growing up, particularly an African-American, you may not know or see or understand anything about architecture or know anybody that looks like you who's doing it. And I was just fortunate to to learn about it and be in the right place at the right time. I talked about Central High School and the opportunities there and, you know, going on to architecture school and, and, and uh, growing and thriving in, in that environment. And so what I'm trying to do, and I've been working on this my whole career, is to raise the visibility uh, of what we do so that uh, hopefully uh, young children can see that and say, geez, that looks like fun. I'd like to do that. And guess what? It is fun. <laughs> you know, I'm, I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, it's just a tremendous career. And I want to bring more people into it. You know, when I, when I look at other art forms, and I do consider architecture art, uh, when I look at music and I look at dance and I look at theater and I see the impact that African-Americans have had on those art forms, it's been transformational. It's, it's been seismic, the impact. Now, just imagine what, you know, wh where's our Miles Davis or, or where's our Alvin Ailey? You know, we haven't seen right that Right here yet. on the phone. Well, I don't know. <laughs> the point the point is um, yeah. that there's a tremendous talent base that, that we're missing out on. You know, forget about the opportunities, and that's important. Uh, every, every child should have an opportunity to, to, to excel and, and do what they love. And so it's important for those individuals, but I think it's even more important for the world to uh, tap into, you know, an un, a source of talent that has been, you know, just sitting there and, and we haven't availed ourselves of it. Right. Because you know, it's part, of it, part of it is architecture is, is a, has a discipline, has a curriculum, is very prescriptive. You know, you, you just can't go to college and decide after a few years you want to major in architecture. You have to know that. You have to get accepted in an accredited architecture program. Most often, the, the standards are higher than the normal university standards. And then it's a rigorous five years at least, and sometimes six or seven, to just get through and and graduate with a, a professional degree. And you're still not an architect. You've got to have, there's an internship, and which is two or three years at least. And then there's an exam. So <laughs> the whole process... Right. It's difficult, and when when you consider the fact that you don't even know about it, and this awareness issue that I mentioned, you know, it's no wonder there there aren't more. But you know, I, I I'm I challenge us, and I include myself, the architecture profession, to do something about that, right? And so, you know, we we're sponsoring a scholarship at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. You can you can approach it from from that end of things, and just as importantly, maybe more so. You know, go into the schools, starting at elementary school and middle school, and talk about architecture and design and landscape and and get youngsters who may have a, a an inclination to to be interested in this, get them in, fired up about it and thinking about it so that when they get to high school and it's time to think about college, they know that there's a path you have to take if you want to be an architect. You know, many, many uh, minority students don't have the resources to say, go through four years of history major and then decide, oh, you know what? I think I'll go back to grad school, get a master's of architecture. Sure. Why not? Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> of course. No, that's not, that's not possible for everyone. So it's about awareness and, and we're trying to do all we can to, to raise that awareness so that people know, uh, youngsters, that 
that this is something that they can do. You know, you will be what you see, you know, and if they don't see it, if all they see is what, what's on television and that people believe being a rap star or a an athlete is are the only path to success, that, that's a myth. That's a lie. We've talked a little bit about challenges and headwinds in our conversation, and you have a big one. You were diagnosed with ALS recently, and you're not slowing down. So talk about that and talk about how you hold that and how you move forward both in business and elsewhere. Sure. Well, it was uh, it was about 18 months ago, the fall of 2015, I began to notice difficulty in, in my normal routine, you know, running and going to the gym and you're trying to keep fit. And and I was feeling like those things were more difficult. I was running the same distances, but slow, more slowly and just sort of feeling out of sorts and knew something was wrong. And I began that winter to, you know, obviously you go to your doctor and and they, they send you to specialists and you go to the orthopedic surgeon and you go to the neurologist and they, people trying to figure this out. And finally, I ended up at at Duke University in their neurology Mm -hmm. department. I kept being referred from one to the next, and I was kind of the last stop. And that's when the diagnosis was uh, shared with me and and my family. Obviously, it was a shock. It was a huge disappointment. And, you know, we we struggled with that and are still struggling. My my mobility slowly is is less and less, and it's harder to move around. But it affects different people in different ways. And, and in some cases, you know, your your speech is affected almost immediately, and you can't breathe and can't swallow. And you know that that particular version of the disease progresses very quickly. For people like me, it, it can begin in the lower half of your body or in one leg, and that seems to be a, a slower progression in most cases. And and so in speaking with my family and my wife about it, you know, we decided that rather than, you know, retreat and pretend nothing is wrong and just sort of fade out of sight, we, we wanted to, first of all, continue to do the work that was important to me and to us. And and secondly, to maybe raise some awareness, is that word again, awareness, <laughs> where there are other people like me who who need the kind of uh, treatment and could benefit from research toward finding a, a cure for the disease, which there is no cure. You know, it was a combination of wanting to stay active, and quite frankly, that's the best thing for my physical and mental health, but also wanting to uh, take some steps to, to, to use the heightened visibility of myself and my wife to bring awareness to this issue of, of ALS and, and try and raise some money. And that's what we've been doing. You know, it's interesting in the, in the summer of that year, I was diagnosed last year, last July, 2016, I decided to take a month off and just sort of, you know, gather myself, figure out what I was going to do. And, and I got worse. <laughs> I got sick. I got, and, and when I went back to work on August one, all of a sudden I got better. <laughs> so Not a surprise. That coming to work and doing meaningful work and and contributing to these projects uh, that are helping people, you know, feeds my spirit in a way that I think has a positive impact on the physical 
Constitution as well. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.